speaker this morning. So this morning we're blessed to uh, have uh, Simon Peacock uh, deliver the message. Simon uh, was on, uh, as an intern, was, uh, had a seventh-month internship with uh, Hillside, and it ended December, and I know he's been sort of, uh, well, he's been busy studying, and, uh, but uh, he's had a little bit of a reading break this week, I understand, so um, he's had the opportunity to prepare, and we're looking forward to what God uh, wants to say through him. So Simon, come on up. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for that. Yeah, this week has been a bit of a nice rest. It's been nice to pre prepare for this and uh, step out of some more technical works. Give me uh, a bit of a renewed energy. Well, it's good to be able to share God's Word with you this morning. So uh, why don't you turn to Psalm 51, and we'll be reading from there in a few moments. If you have a Bible, open it up there. If you have an app, go ahead. I won't judge you. I'm using an iPad to preach, so it's fine. Um, the idea of repentance is not particularly popular. Uh, I think we can see that in our culture today. Even the word repent sounds kind of archaic, primitive. The idea that comes to my mind, at least, is someone with a, with a sign, something about the end of the world, you know, repent, the end is nigh. Um, that's the image that comes to mind. Apologizing sounds much better. You know, to apologize, not, not repent. But even apologizing, all you have to do is look at some of the uh, supposed apologies that many people make to see how much this really goes against human nature. Here are some specific recent examples. And if you've kept up to date with the news, you may be able to figure out which ones I'm drawing upon. I was wrong, but everyone does it. I was wrong, but I was young. I was wrong, but other people have done worse things. And I have done that, but on that specific occasion, that wasn't me. As if that's some kind of defense. But haven't we all found ourselves saying something like that before? When we come face to face with our own sinfulness, our own failures, and we naturally try to defend ourselves, to give an excuse. We know our own motivations, we know our own situations, we know the stress that we've been through, and so we naturally end up trying to give some kind of an excuse. It's so one of the reasons why Psalm 51 is so unique. There's no hint of excuse, and there's no downplaying of sin in David's confession. He stands completely guilty before God and casts himself upon his mercy. There are several reasons why I think this psalm is particularly relevant for us today. The first is that, although I didn't know this at the time when I selected the psalm to preach on, it's actually traditionally one of seven psalms that's read during Lent, the season just before Easter. And so seasonally, it's very appropriate. The second reason is that the psalm starts by placing it within this specific situation, this specific context of David's life, particularly his adulterous affair with Bathsheba. 
But then the extraordinary thing is, the rest of the psalm makes no reference to this. It might as well be a, a psalm of repentance for anything. So why is that? And it's because that's why it was written. It was written to be prayed by others. It was written to be a general prayer of repentance and confession. You can even see at the end, the last two verses, that probably Israel and exile pray attaching to this psalm references to Jerusalem. And so all throughout church history, for thousands of years, this psalm has been prayed. And so by exploring this, then we stand in that tradition. And so my hope is that this psalm will become our prayer today. That's its intention. That's its example for us to follow. As we prepare for Easter and reflect upon the necessity of Jesus' sacrifice, exploring this psalm will be greatly beneficial in preparing our hearts for that time. So let's go ahead and uh, read God's word together. If you wouldn't mind standing as we read the word of the Lord. And you'll notice that our title today, A Broken and Contrite Heart, actually comes directly from the psalm, contrite, meaning repentant. Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment." Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would give us 
understanding and insight as we search through it. We ask for open hearts, open minds, open eyes to see what you are speaking to us. And we ask for a heart that will act accordingly in response. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and take seat. And keep your Bibles open as we'll keep going back to look at specific parts of the psalm. I think this psalm can be summarized quite simply. It's not particularly complex, which is good for a Sunday morning. And how it's summarized is really into three different parts. There are three parts that make up um, David's statement in this psalm. The first is, I am guilty and I have no excuse. It's his starting point for all of this. The second is, my only hope is for God to forgive me and transform me. We'll explore those two aspects, forgiveness, transformation, later on. And third, the reason for that isn't for anything of, of his own. He doesn't have any pe- appeal in and of himself. But his hope for God to transform him and forgive him is because of God's great love and compassion. So that's really the roadmap for what we're going to be exploring this morning. So first, I am guilty and I have no excuse. One of the most striking things about this psalm, as we've already picked up on, is David's utter defenselessness. He doesn't try to make any excuses. There's no hint of, well, I was really stressed at the time. Or, well, other people have done worse things. Or, or, well, everyone does it. Or, it was just a one-off. He lays himself completely bare before God. Even the words he uses for what he's done seem to span across the entire dictionary. Look at verse 1. Transgressions, which means rebellion. The idea is breaking a relationship with another person, rejecting God's authority. Verse 2, iniquity. Something that's crooked, twisted, bent, distorted. Verse 2 again, sin, which at its root means to miss the mark or or to miss the way. And verse 4, evil. Something that's, that's morally depraved. David is heaping up these words as he gives us a greater picture of what sin really is. It's like someone severing a relationship and rejecting that person. It's, in comparison to God's way, a twisted, bent distortion. It's like arriving in New York when you are meant to go to Vancouver. I'm not sure if any of you saw this, but recently in the news it said that there was a flight, uh, British Airways flight, um, and it was meant to go to Germany, and it arrived in Scotland accidentally, which is a bit of an error, like, it's uh, not even the same country. But it's like that, or some of you may remember the story of Jonah in scripture, Jonah and the big fish, and how Jonah ended up in that predicament was God told him to go to Nineveh, and he went in the opposite direction. He totally, intentionally missed the way. It's completely opposite to God's good nature. This is the 
the picture of sin that David gives us. It spans the entire spectrum. There's no one way to talk about it. This is a description of sin that David gives us, this comprehensive picture, and it permeates everything. The New Living Translation puts verse 5 like this. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. The idea is that David's life is soaked through with sin from the moment it began when he was conceived. He can't claim that this was just a one-off. He can't claim that this was just out of character and therefore just, just pass over at this one time. It's a simple but very comprehensive confession. And I think that teaches us something about confession. It's not meant to be complicated. It's not meant to be technical. Confession is very simple at the heart of it, as this psalm and and the structure of what we're looking at shows us. And then notice what David asks for as well, asks for in response to what he's done. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly. Cleanse me. Purge me. He does the same thing that he did with how he explains what he's done. He heaps up these different descriptions. He keeps using different words to show the full extent of what he needs. It's not just as simple as saying, Lord, forgive me. He's unclean. It's like he's fallen into a tar pit or he's covered in oil and he needs to be cleansed. He's immersed in sin. When I was younger, I was, went to my grandparents' house, and um, I should say that I, I was younger, I think I was old enough to know better, so I'll just preface it with that. But I was chewing on a, a pen, and inevitably, at some point, I chewed through it, chewed into the cartridge, and, and ink burst into my mouth. It was a blue cartridge pen. Um, and if you're wondering, it tastes horrible, um, so... <laughs> Don't do that if any of you are considering that. Um, but it also stained my mouth. It looked like I'd eaten a smurf. Um, for a while, it, it was stained. That's the idea, the imagery that David is getting at. He's stained. This is what sin has done to him, stained him through and through. That's why he uses this language of being cleansed, of being washed. But unlike As you can see, I do not have a smurf mouth anymore. Unless there is divine intervention, David's stain is permanent. Then he goes even even further. Verse 3. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. I think it was last year that we had a, a partial solar eclipse. If you were down in the States, I think... If you went somewhere, then you're able to see the, the full eclipse. And every time there's an eclipse, then there's always those warnings. You know, if people haven't learned yet, remember, don't look at the sun. <laughs> it's, it's really powerful. It's really strong. It's not going to do anything good for you. You need to, if you want to watch the eclipse, you need to watch it through something else. Maybe some special sunglasses or a reflector with something, some barrier to protect your eyes. But inevitably, some people uh, don't heed those warnings. And so in 2017, a woman in New York went to the hospital 
after an eclipse because her vision was blurry and there was a dark spot in her left field of vision. And a news article says that upon examination, doctors noticed that the dark spot in her eye actually resembled a partial solar eclipse. Her vision permanently bears the marks of looking at the sun. That event is ever before her eyes. That's what David is saying about his sin. He can't just forget about it. He can't just ignore it. He can't just come to terms with it himself. He actually needs something miraculous that only God can do. He needs to be healed because it's ever before him. It's seared into his eyesight. This isn't just David, though, is it? Isn't this the human condition? It's interesting that we don't need to teach kids to be bad, but to be good. But badness seems to come quite naturally. Even the best of us still fail miserably. This is why true repentance is so unpopular. It forces us to acknowledge without excuse the depths of our own intentional sinfulness. Even among some professing Christians, the idea of the depths of our sinfulness is unpopular. William Paul Young has written a book called Lies We Believe About God. And in it, he says one of these lies is, God is good, I am not. He writes this. We have crippled eyes, but not a core of ungoodness. We are true and right, but often ignorant and stupid, acting out of the pain of our wrongheadedness, hurting ourselves, others, even all creation. Blind, not depraved, is our condition. Notice the language that he uses. Blind, ignorant. These are words that take away personal responsibility. Now, the reason why he believes this is because we're made in the image of God. And so how can something made in the image of God be anything but good? But he makes a number of crucial mistakes. The first and foremost is that he neglects the, important, the importance and the ramifications, the consequences of the fall. Yes, we are made in the image of God, but also the sinfulness of humanity has had such an effect so many consequences on who we are. Scripture talks about us being dead in sin. And actually, the, the picture that we get of humanity in Scripture is the deeper you go, the worse it gets. In Mark 7, Jesus says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, Coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So yes, humanity is blind, but also depraved. Sin is ignorance, but also so much more. It's also disobedience. 
It's evil. It's willful ignorance. If someone's blind, and that's all it is, then we, we don't blame someone for being blind. But sin is much more than that. Which brings us back to the idea that this psalm is meant for us to pray. We've been given a picture of what sin is that cuts across the, 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 the cliches of our society. It cuts across what we may hope or think that sin is. It's an error. It's a misstep. It's a mistake. It's a typo. It cuts across all of these cliches and, and shows us the real picture of what sin is and the real state of humanity. So I am guilty and I have no excuse. Secondly, my only hope is for God to forgive me and transform me. The entire psalm is directed towards God. David doesn't talk to anyone else in it. And he even goes so far as to say in verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned. Well, actually, his, his sin has had very real consequences. I'm sure Bathsheba and Uriah, her husband, would definitely agree that there were grave consequences towards them. So in a real sense, David's sin is not just against God. But the point is that despite the effect on other people, ultimately, primarily, first and foremost, David's sin is against God. It's a rejection of him. It's a rejection of his good character. It's a rejection, a denial of his rightful authority and his goodness. Aldous Huxley is an English writer. He wrote a best-known book of his, I think, is called A Brave New World. And he once wrote, Chronic remorse, as all the moralists are agreed, is a most undesirable sentiment. If you have behaved badly, repent, make what amends you can, and address yourself to the task of behaving better next time. On no account brood over your wrongdoing. Rolling it in the muck is not the best way of getting clean. And in some ways, this sounds great. It sounds better than the cliches of, well, you've been forgiven, forget. Forget all the bad things you've done. All the, those are just mistakes, move on. Make amends, work towards behaving better next time. Don't wallow in self-pity and dwell on your wrongdoing. But he only gets the picture half right, doesn't he? Yes, we should try to make amends when we hurt someone. Yes, we should work on doing better next time. Yes, we should repent, though Huxley means something very different from the, the Christian vision of that. But what's the answer when the person we've caused offense to is the almighty God of the universe? How do you make amends with the creator of everything? How do you give something back to the one who lacks nothing. And Huxley has no response. In fact, uh, there is only one answer to it, which is the one that David gives to us. Our only hope is for God to be merciful, to not act on how we deserve. 
And so David ends up asking for two things, calling upon God's mercy. The first is forgiveness. We've already looked at the language that this psalm uses for this. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly. Cleanse me. Purge me. His sin must be removed. That's the immediate problem. And then there's a promise that goes along with it. Purge me with hyssop. If you're unfamiliar with your Middle Eastern plants, hyssop uh, is a reference to a plant that was used during the Passover and in priestly purification. So it's used in purification. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Um, I didn't grow up in Canada. I've lived here for about three years now. And in England, where I originally come from, then the snow that we have is sporadic. We don't get it too often, and we don't get much of it. So I quite enjoy the amount of snow that we get here. Uh, my wife, who grew up in Alberta, less so. She finds it more frustrating. I think she's had enough snow for a lifetime. Um, and so uh, I think it might get on her nerves when I'm a bit too joyful about getting a foot of snow. But um, there's this moment of when you wake up in the morning after a snowfall, and it's, it's the dawn, and, and you look out through the door, you look out through the windows, and this sheet of white has just covered everything. And it's untouched, it, it's undefiled, it's clean, it's pure. That's the imagery that David is using about when God washes us. Uh, when God washes us, that's what happens. That's the assurance. That there's no possibility of it not happening. It's not like he tries to wash us, and he's like, I missed a bit. You know, when I'm giving a bath to my little son, and I'm like, I get to the end, I missed, like I forgot to wash his ears, and it all like clogs up. That's not God. He's not saying, no, like there's still some sin behind your ears. When God washes us, we're cleansed. When he purges us, we're clean. But then David goes even further, and secondly, he pleads with God to transform him. Look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And then verse 12. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Or as the New Living Translation says, make me willing to obey you. If all that God does is forgive David, cleanse him this one time, then he's still stuck in this endless cycle of sin, this vicious cycle, repeating the same errors again and again. The root issue is still there. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we have some gardeners in, uh, here today. My dad grew up on a, a farm, and uh, throughout his life, although he didn't follow that career, He's been an avid um, gardener enthusiast as a hobby. And so when I was younger, he would get me to help with weeding. Um, I wasn't a particularly willing child with that. And uh, 
I didn't do a very good job. I distinctly remember a few occasions, at least, where you just kind of swipe the weeds from the surface. And so it looks great, but underneath the soil, the, the roots are still there, which is not the thing to do with weeds, because they will come back. Then your father will be disple displeased with you, and he'll realize what you did. But if you don't sort out the root problem, then the issue keeps coming back. It may be good for a couple of weeks. It may be good for longer, but it will inevitably come back. What David needs as well as forgiveness is complete transformation. A complete transformation. The word create used here refers to something that is only possible for God to do. David is asking for a miracle. He's asking for a new heart, one that's willing to follow God and be obedient. We see this language repeated in the New Testament. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And in Ephesians 4, You were taught to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Interestingly, in Ephesians 4, Paul recognizes the tension that we still have, though. He talks about learning to put on the new self. We are made new if we trust in Christ, but in this life we still have the tension of being pulled back into our old ways of living. There's this tension between putting on the new self and taking off the old self. There's this tension between the already and the not quite yet. But the transformation makes it possible to live rightly before God. It creates a heart that is not content to let sin reign. Those who trust in Christ are no longer slaves to sin, Paul says in Romans 6. So my only hope is for, for God to forgive me and transform me. And thirdly, what is our hope that God will forgive us and transform us? Because of his great love and compassion. It's been clear enough already that this psalm teaches us that we have nothing to appeal to in and of ourselves. Actually, just like the examples that we had at the beginning, if we do try to appeal to some excuse, some extenuating circumstance, it actually detracts from our repentance. It, it shows us a lack of recognition of our own wrongdoing. Again, David's words are striking in verses three to four. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, and blameless in your judgment. The New Living Translation puts the end of this verse well again. You will be proved right in what you say. Your judgment against me is just. David is saying, I have no excuse. Whatever you decide, your judgments are righteous. I have nothing to appeal to, no excuse. He's out of options. There's only one thing 
he can do and one thing that he does do. Read verse 1 with me. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. He appeals to God's own character, his own love and compassion. This is the heart of what Christianity is about. This is the heart of the Christian message. Coming before God to confess our sinfulness. No excuses, no tricks to try and get out of it. Humble recognition of that reality and relying on his love for forgiveness and transformation. And that is what is available in Christ, God's Son. Through belief in him, because of his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, we are able to be cleansed. We are able to be purified. We are able to be forgiven. We are able to be transformed. And that's the hope that David looked forward to. It's the hope that we can have as we lead towards Easter with joy, knowing that in that event, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, we see the greatness of God's love and compassion for us. So where does this leave us? Something that I believe God's been teaching me and and reinforcing for quite a while now is that a greater understanding of my own sinfulness and His holiness leads to a greater understanding of Jesus' sacrifice and God's goodness. If I understand more fully the gap between where I am and where God is, then that gives me a greater appreciation for Jesus' sacrifice because then his sacrifice must cover an even greater extent than I thought before. Paradoxically, for those whose hope is in Jesus, a truer, fuller understanding of our own depravity leads to greater joy because we understand even more the extent of Jesus' sacrifice for us, which fits with something that Jesus said in Luke 7, to slightly paraphrase. The one who is forgiven much, loves much. The one who is forgiven little, loves little. The more we understand how much we truly have been forgiven, the more this fuels our love for Jesus. So here's my encouragement as we finish. This psalm and the rest of scripture is filled with great promises for us. Another one in this passage, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The right response to our own sinfulness, the holiness of God and the sacrifice of Jesus is humble confession before God. Whether we've already called upon Christ, in which case we recognize that we haven't yet been made perfect. We're still struggling with this putting on the new self, putting off the old self. And so we come before God to confess our sins and pray as the Lord's Prayer says, forgive us our debts. Or whether we haven't responded to God's love and compassion yet, in which case we can now humble ourselves, come before God and say, Lord, you are God of all. Be Lord of my life. Forgive me. Transform me. I confess my sins.
If you haven't sought God's forgiveness, I urge you to do so. And may all of us each lead lives of continual confession and repentance, remembering the great love of God. Amen. Before we turn to communion in a few moments, we're going to enter a short time of personal confession. One interesting comment I found as I was um, studying this passage was, uh, if you look at the first half of the psalm, verses 1 through 9, you'll see there are over 10 references to sinfulness and one explicit reference to God. The second part of the psalm, verses 10 to 19, you get six explicit references to God and two references to sinfulness, which led the authorized reading to conclude by saying, with confession, sin gives way to God's presence. That's how David wrote this psalm. Sin or confession, sin gives way to God's presence. And so, as I read an older prayer for us, I encourage you in your heart to confess your sin to God, calling upon his great love and compassion as he draws near to you. The prayer will be on the screen if you want to read along. Merciful Lord, pardon all my sins of this day, week, year all the sins of my life, sins of early, middle, and advanced years, sins of omission and commission, by doing what I shouldn't have and by not doing what I should have, for angry tempers of lip, life, and walk, of hard-heartedness, unbelief, presumption, pride, of unfaithfulness to the souls of men, of lacking boldness in the cause of Christ, of deficiency in outspoken zeal for his glory, of bringing dishonor upon your great name, of deception, injustice, untruthfulness in my dealings with others, of impurity in thought, word, and deed, of envy, which is idolatry, of selfishness and greed, not bringing glory to you, the great giver, sins in private and in the family, in study, in recreation, in the study of your word and in the, the neglect of it, in prayer flippantly offered and coldly withheld in time misspent, in giving in to Satan's temptations, in being unwatchful when I know he is near, in quenching the Holy Spirit, sins against light and knowledge, against conscience and the restraints of your spirit, against the law of eternal love, Pardon all my sins, known 
and unknown, felt and unfelt, confessed and not confessed, remembered or forgotten. Good Lord, hear, and in hearing, forgive. In the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.